My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Kieran Hart, Charmaine Khan, and Temok Tanya Vega. There's an oft-repeated quote from Karl Marx that says, Philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. There is certainly something to how this assertion is commonly understood, with its bold push towards action. Today, whether you look at social media or at so much work done in think tanks, governments, and universities, you see lots of interpreting, even some that claims to want change, but a serious lack of the kinds of activities that might create change. At the same time, as Marx knew as well as anyone, interpreting the world and working to change it are deeply interrelated activities. You have to know things about how the social world works in order to be effective at changing it, whether your aim is the mildest of reforms or burn-it-all-down transformation. And in the course of struggle, you invariably learn new things. In our current moment, we have relatively few spaces for thinking deeply and reflecting at length at that juncture of theory and action. The pace of social media is too frenetic, the pressures of academia mean that only a few tiny corners allow for such things, and autonomous infrastructure of dissent, to borrow a phrase from radical Canadian sociologist Alan Sears, is in a sorry state. Today's guests are all experienced activists and organizers in Toronto, with their collective involvement spanning global justice, worker, migrant justice, anti-war, harm reduction, anti-poverty, student, indigenous solidarity, Palestine solidarity, and many other struggles. They are also members of the editorial collective of Upping the Ante, a print publication that describes itself as a journal of theory and action. Upping the Ante was founded in 2005. It was envisioned as a space to do some deep, honest reflection on the kinds of theoretical questions that are relevant to movements. Moreover, the aim was to do this in a non-sectarian way. Rather than advancing a singular political line, it aimed to bring together the currents of anti-capitalism, anti-oppression, and anti-imperialism, and to be open to the insights of long-standing radical traditions like socialism, anarchism, communism, and a range of liberation struggles. It was meant as a space not to provide answers or to pretend to have blueprints for radical change, but to ask questions, to reflect, to debate, and to explore. Originally and very ambitiously intended as a monthly publication, it has mostly published twice a year, and recently just once a year. Each issue includes articles, interviews, roundtables, and book reviews. Each time there's a scramble to raise the money to cover printing costs, and each time they manage it and keep moving forward. The journal has a reputation for making its contributors work hard, for sinking generous amounts of editorial labor into working with authors new to this kind of writing, and also for pushing those coming from a more academic place to reorient their work towards struggles on the ground. Issue 22 of Upping the Ante will be out soon. A particularly internationalist issue, it includes pieces about recent uprisings in Chile, indigenous struggles in Oaxaca, Mexico, anti-fascist organizing in Hungary, organizing by workers with critical socialist politics in China, and a roundtable on anti-imperialist solidarity and alignment with left struggles in the Global South. 
Closer to home, it also includes content on youth climate organizing in Canada, teacher organizing in Ontario, the unsuccessful movement for a provincial general strike in BC in the early 2000s, and more. Admittedly, not everyone in movements is convinced that it's worth the effort required to write and to read radical theory, even when that theory is explicitly grounded in struggle. Kahn counters, quote, Sometimes being able to reflect on the decisions we make politically, on the theory behind it, not only makes our particular organizing of an issue stronger, but when we share that, I feel that it strengthens everyone's activism, everyone's organizing, end quote. I speak with Hart, Kahn, and Vega about the importance of radical theory to radical action, about the challenges of grassroots media making, and about upping the ante. And in the spirit of transparency, I should add that I have been a member of the advisory board of Upping the Ante for many years. I'm Charmaine Khan. I'm one of the editors of the editorial collective of Upping the Ante. Upping the Ante is an activist journal or a social movement journal. We've been around since 2005. And we want to look at the kind of interwoven tendencies of radical organizing. So anti-capitalism, anti-oppression, and anti-imperialism. And we take on various formats of the journal to try and go into depth about social movements in Canada and around the world. On the journal, I'm like the oldie editor. I've been around since Journal One. And as an activist, I've been organizing in Toronto for around 15 years. I guess I try to like do my activism in three quadrants, I suppose. It was really important to me to be involved with some sort of media project. So I am involved with Up in the Ante for sure. And then I help out with things like Briar Patch. I used to be really active in radio. Another aspect of my organizing is around training. So being able to train folks to get more skills in organizing. I coordinate a group called Tools for Change in Toronto. And then a third aspect is engaging in some sort of community organizing or direct action. And I do that a lot of that work through known as illegal. And also kind of like everyone else, just be part of different coalitions. So a lot of my coalition work or networking has been mostly through Migrant Justice. So doing stuff through Migrant Rights Network or Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, which is here in Toronto. I'm Kieran Hart. I'm on the editorial collective of Up in the Ante, obviously. I started doing organizing, I guess, at York University when I was an undergrad student. I was involved with the PERG there and connected to a bunch of different people who are still in my life now through organizing, and then went on to sort of, over the last 10 years, doing some anti-poverty organizing, Indigenous solidarity work. I feel very disconnected from organizing. I mean, probably everyone feels that way right now. But right now, I would say more of my interests lie in the work that I'm doing as a nurse around harm reduction and safer opioid supply and supervised consumption sites. So I'm not very connected to grassroots organizing now, other than through the journal. My name is Timok Tanya Vega. I am currently a PhD student at York University doing my dissertation on migration and labor studies. And I'm also a member of the editorial collective of Up in the Ante, and I run the promotional portfolio for it. I guess I started with being interested in like the NDP and electoral politics when I was young. And then as I saw how inaccessible that route was and how little change came from it, I slowly became radicalized. And also as I started getting involved with people like Charmaine, for example, who were into more grassroots social movements, that kind of became more my interest. 
Right now, other than up in the ante, most of my activism is concentrated in the York University Union, QP3903. I've been fairly involved with the last two strikes, and currently I sit on the executive. And other than that, I tangentially, you know, join rallies and direct action and things like that as they come along. Although obviously, since the pandemic started, everything has just kind of slowed down a lot. Where did Upping the Ante originally come from, and how did it initially take shape? We started in 2005. Officially, the journal was a project split from people who left the New Socialist Group in Toronto, or maybe across Canada. I wasn't part of that split at all. I joined after the project was proposed because of friends and comrades I had who were basically wanting to have a more non-sectarian publication. So have a journal that engaged with anarchist organizing and anarchist theory, and as well as communist and socialist theory in kind of a non-sectarian way. The purpose of the journal was a place to ask more questions rather than give answers. So rather than have a publication that, you know, set out the framework and template of how to win the revolution, you know, a lot of people try that or have that as a template. It just doesn't work. It hasn't been working. I think at the time when the journal started, we were experiencing on the left and as activists some major defeats. Like we had lost the momentum from anti-globalization and we were also coming out of some intense anti-war organizing, which mobilized a great deal of people. But we still were part of witnessing the invasion and war, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. So, yeah, the purpose was just to be a place for organizers and activists to really delve deeply into the theory behind their actions, the strategies they took why, and also be a place for activists to engage in more history and theoretical questions, because so much of writing and theory is within the academia sphere. So that was the intent. The intent was to try and do a monthly thing. And then we did twice a year. And now we've seen ourselves just being able to do one journal a year. Although I think we hope every year that we can get back to doing two a year. We've grown a lot since that time and now have an editorial collective, I think, of eight and then an advisory board spanning across Canada, and also there's some in the States, I believe, too. Walk listeners through the practical work of one production cycle for the journal. So after the issue is finished, we usually do a retreat to discuss what went well, what didn't. And that's when we usually do a call for pitches. So we do a open call for pitches, and then when those come back, we'll review them, and then we also might reach out to people. I mean, we try to like not stay too local, but there is a tendency to sometimes focus on issues that are more Canadian. And I know that's something that we've tried to address, but like we think about things that are happening and we try to think about who are people we could approach to write this. So there's a combination of open call and then there's also reaching out to people who are involved in movements that are happening to write something. And once that happens and we have people who are going to write something, we do a deadline for the first draft, kind of create a storyboard. All the people on the editorial collective have different portfolios that they work on. So like Tanya works on promotions and Charmaine works on finance. I worked as one of the production people. And yeah, so we go through several different drafts with people. And there's usually an editor and then there's a second reader. So each time the editor and the second reader will give feedback. And then once we're in the sort of final draft stage, we do seven proofs of each article or roundtable or book review. That's after it's been put into layout. So we can capture also like any issues with layout as well. And then we usually do a final proof of the whole thing. 
that was a very abridged version of what it looks like. If the editor and the second reader still feel like there are issues, then we can talk about it as a editorial collective. If it feels like this piece isn't, you know, getting to where it needs to go, or that maybe there's resistance to, you know, addressing some of the issues with the piece. We like to challenge people, you know, why is this relevant? Like not just being theoretical because we're not an academic journal. Like how does this relate back to organizing? How can people be involved in this? Why should people care about these issues? Even the articles, we try not to leave them in like a theoretical place, but also like how it relates back to what's happening on the ground. One step too is that we have an advisory board of very talented activists and organizers and writers. So as close as we can get to the article before being published, we send them out for readers' reports. So completely new, fresh eyes, a different perspective to then move forward on and give more feedback. I also think part of the production process while we're dealing like trying to like move the storyboard along to getting the articles in, all of us are also then juggling the operations side of the journal. So making sure that we can, you know, fundraise, do the subscriptions, do the promotions and things like that. So it's kind of a balancing act. One of the major hurdles when we try to put an issue out is the editorial because from the start, when we go on our retreat, we already sort of pitch ideas as to what this editorial can be. And it often is the last thing that we have ready because there's seven or eight of us that are having their input in. It's usually one person who writes it, but what we do is that we research the topic together and then we come together and discuss the points that need to be on the editorial. But as you can imagine, trying to write an editorial with eight people's opinion on it can get really spicy. So this is why it's often the last thing to be ready. And what does the promotional side of the work look like for a project like this? I kind of approach it in a multi-tier way. As an everyday sort of thing, I try to keep the journal's name in people's minds by resharing a lot of stuff from other leftist social media accounts. I try to retweet things, post things on Instagram stories, on Facebook, try to share articles, whether it's from Briarpatch or from other publications, just to make sure that the journal is bringing in more people, people are sharing our name out there. So that's on the everyday level. And then in terms of the actual journal, obviously, we discuss as a group how we're going to be promoting it, whether it's, you know, having a sale where you can have a promotion code so that can persuade people into buying the journal or buying back issues. We also try to align promotions with important events, like, for example, May Day or, you know, even Christmas sale, for example. And then in terms of the actual launch, once we have the issue ready, traditionally, we would have a big party in Toronto and their journal would be included with the entrance fee. We usually get quite a huge amount of people and that also serves as a fundraiser. But now, because we are obviously in the state that we are, what we've been trying to do is either, you know, we have a series of videos that we release on Instagram, that it's the contributors from issue 22, you know, a couple of minutes talking about their piece. We're also obviously having this podcast to try to try people to entice them to read the journal. And one last thing that we are planning on doing is actually going uh, postering, just some good old fashioned postering around the city just to get, again, our name on people's mind. What are some of the things in the issue that's just about to come out that you're excited to share with readers? We're having a comic strip for the first time. It's about dismantling Confederate monuments in the South. It's like an excerpt from the larger work that's going to be published. That's something new for us. 
And then the piece that I worked on for the issue is about resisting fascism in Budapest and having to make some unholy alliances with people on the right to dismantle something that's further on the right. A piece I spent a long time working on was a roundtable of activists in British Columbia around trying to organize for the general strike that failed, unfortunately. Uh, And that was in the early 2000s. Because right now in Ontario, there's been rumblings or people are like talking about like, when will there be a general strike? How can we build that? And I really wanted to go back and actually interview people about like what building a mass movement provincially against a very conservative government looked like, how much time it took. And also the lessons about, you know, union resistance to that kind of rank and file organizing. I think it'll be a really important intervention as we think about how to resist locally. Some of the pieces that I was part of that I'm excited for people to read, one of them is this interview with Yasnaya Elena Aguilar-Gil. She's an Indigenous activist in Mexico. And even though I'm Mexican, my knowledge in terms of the movements down there isn't great. So this was actually a really good way for me to once again sort of piece everything together in my mind. And actually now reading more on the history of Oaxaca was really enlightening for me. Another piece that I'm excited for is actually one of the book reviews. It's a review of Blood and Money by David McNally. In this book, he really traces the close history of the development of money and currency with things like slavery and colonialism. What was really good about this review is that it allowed me to see how far this history actually went. And obviously, we're super excited about the editorial, which is on mutual aid. Mutual aid is not obviously a new term, but it has been renewed by the need that came out of the pandemic. And so in this editorial, we really explore how mutual aid has to go beyond just like charity and how it has to be connected to some sort of political project. So we look at the history of mutual aid and we bring forward a bunch of questions that I think are really important to keep in mind. These questions keep coming up because it aligns really easily with neoliberalism, right? The states don't have to provide anything. They can just rely on the social reproduction coming from the communities. And so I think we have to be really careful when we embark in those projects that we're not just simply allowing the state to disavow any responsibility for providing services. And so I think the editorial is a really good contribution in that regard. I think this issue is actually one of the more internationalist issues we put out. We also have through interviews on the uprisings that happened in Chile in 2019 and the impacts now. We also have this great article about new left organizing in China, like new workers organizing in China. Another roundtable we have is around the left response to global uprisings and really taking on the debates right now about, you know, campism or critiques of like what's happening in Syria and also what's happening in uprisings in Hong Kong, like when countries are seen as enemies, I'm using air quotes, enemies of the states in Canada, how left support can happen and some of the contradictions and really like intense debates and fights amongst activists about where to lend their support. And then local stuff, we have Sarah Vance talking about the teachers' struggles and teachers mobilizing in Ontario. And then we have this interesting article about anarchism and indigenous thought. The author mostly goes into like Ontario or Canadian-based history really kind of unpacks this question about non-authoritarianism and also genderqueer formations in Indigenous organizing. So yeah, a lot of different links to be made from where we're writing to like a lot of international pieces. 
So I know that upping the ante sometimes encounters skepticism from people involved in movements, that this kind of attention to theory, to ideas, to kinds of writing that are not necessarily easy to write or to read, is worth it. Why do you think that this kind of theoretical work is an important contribution to movements? Yeah, we do have to convince a lot of people. And a lot of times we've actually, you know, approached organizations and activists and there's just like a lack of capacity. They're just like, we can't put in the work because I think we're pretty upfront of our process. Also, people have heard of it. People have survived it and have vowed never to work with us again because of it. But we're just really committed to the length of time and amount of edits. But I guess my pitch to the movement, my pitch to activists is that Sometimes being able to reflect on the decisions we make politically, on the theory behind it, not only makes our particular organizing of an issue stronger, but when we share that, I feel that it strengthens everyone's activism, everyone's organizing, be able to share that and have the debates and share strategies, share tactics, share failures, share successes. I think everyone who reads that, it enriches their organizing in terms of the context and the different dynamics and debates that were happening. Secondly, I feel that it's also historical memory, like our journal provides, I mean, if you look back 15 years, I guess, of content, you really see the changes of the debates happening, of tactics being tried, strategies being tried. And we want to be a place where a lot of struggles, which haven't had much space or being able to be in print, do get that. And then I guess finally, my pitch to activists as to why it's important and why it's important to put in the time is that we want to be a journal for other organizers and activists and definitely like the public and people who aren't organizing do read it as well. But we need to create more of a culture of study, of reading, of theory amongst activists in order to be stronger. Being able to have space to unpack the kind of contradictions and the systems of oppression that we live in our society. And be able to juxtapose that with what our dreams are for a better world, what our dreams are for a revolutionary society. But I don't think many activists are able to have that space to juggle both or deal with both. Part of my job in promotion is trying to revive some of the old content and make that available for people who are just coming into learning about Up in the Ante. And as I go back and read the old content, it's not shocking, but you just realize how little things really change, that history is very cyclical and that we need to break that cycle. And the lessons from the past are valuable in this regard. And we, you know, live in an age where it's so easy to just go ahead and Google anything. And yet that doesn't mean that the quality of the information that you're going to find is great. And so having this journal that has not only gone through, it feels like a million edits, I think that we can offer that quality to activists to say like, hey, listen, these articles are not just someone's hot take on something. These have gone through a robust round of edits, especially because people think that they can just send in their school paper and that it's going to be fine. And then they end up having to like rewrite almost the whole thing when we challenge them and tell them like, okay, this information is good, but it needs to be useful for activists. You need to tell us why this information is important. The journal can also like encourage people to get involved in movements that are happening locally. I also think it's really interesting when we can put people in conversation with each other. So like when roundtables happen and people can talk to each other if they were involved in the same sort of organizing and it might be like years later where they've reflected on like what worked and what didn't and they can pass on that knowledge to people who are doing organizing now. 
But I also think it's really interesting when we have conversations that are within the same sort of movements. I'm thinking of like an issue 20 where we had interviews with people who are doing overdose prevention sites now. And then we had a piece from Anne Livingston, who was like a harm reduction organizer in Vancouver about the advent of unsanctioned supervised consumption sites. Like Charmaine has mentioned, organizers don't really have the space anywhere and we're not going to be given the space anywhere to do this kind of reflection and publish this kind of work. So I think that's why it's so important to have the journal. How do you hope that upping the ante will continue to evolve and change into the future? We've endeavored to do a bit more like of an internationalist lens on this issue, but it's still coming from a lot of people who are based in Canada, even if they have experiences with those places. So I think going forward, I think it would be good to like continue being able to engage with more people internationally and develop content that has a bit more of an internationalist lens, because I think that in the past we have had more local content and yeah, maybe doing two issues a year. Let's dream big. We hope Up in the Ante can expand our readership so that we can at least pay our printing costs. We do have as a goal trying to have some sort of fun so that we can pay our contributors because we do understand that they have very precarious jobs, that they are spending a lot of time already in activism. So this seems like a big ask to then ask them to, you know, get involved and write in an article or an interview or something like that, especially one that is going to have so many back and forths to get it to be good quality. So we continue to try to expand our readership to expand our reach and hope through our readers' contributions, monetary contributions or other, that we can finally get to that goal of publishing to a year. I think another place where I want to see the journal going is having more working relationships with other activists and alternative media publications or organizations. And then we also really want to be better. We want to be better as editors, as a journal, and also be better organizers in activist media. So we also link up with other activist journalists in Canada. And we really want to print things that people are proud of. We also want to share skills. So, you know, engage in workshops or trainings around how to write, how to do this so that other people can do it too. I think one hard thing about Epping the Ante before when I started was that I was the only person of color or only woman of color. And we tended to attract a lot of writers who had experienced writing, like who were male and like were trained through school or just through experience. And I think now what makes me really happy about the journal and I hope that we can improve in the future is that the makeup of the collective is almostly women and gender queer. We have one token white guy right now officially on the collective and that a lot of our discussions and when we're thinking about content is a lot more centered now around trying to work with people who don't normally have access to print or to their voice being published and also haven't had people uphold them as writers or as theorists. And hopefully in the future, we can be better. Like We aren't perfect at all. We often struggle with trying to get Black, Indigenous writers and voices in our journal, but we're really intentional and spend a lot of time making those relationships to make that happen. And so when I think about the future, not only with the makeup of the journal, but the content, I hope that it really comes from the front lines of those who are organizing and resisting, but also voices that have been systemically excluded and still are excluded in a lot of our movements. It took a long time to make that shift happen, but it is happening. You have been listening to my interview with Kieran Hart, Charmaine Khan, and Tanya Vega. To learn more about Upping the Ante, go to uppingtheante.org. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>